It's going to be a long road to recovery for the Canadian economy once the coronavirus pandemic ends. Between April and June, economic activity dropped by more than a third, the worst posting in nearly 60 years of data. And post-pandemic, there could be some reasons for hope. I'm Adam Toy. And I'm Dave McIver. And this is Why. As the pandemic drags into its sixth month, more and more people are feeling the effects in their pocketbook as unemployment hit a record high in May of 13.7%. But that's improved since then to just more than 10% in August. Last episode, we looked at what happened on September 27th when CERB or CERB ended and millions of Canadians had to transition to EI and other CERB replacements. Today, we take a look at two areas of the economy that could help lead a post-pandemic recovery. Let's start with small business. Laura Jones is an executive VP at the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, or CFIB. Uh, Welcome, Laura. Thanks for having me on the show. So we wanted to have you on to talk about, uh, uh, you know, small business and, uh, you know, this pandemic. How significant are small businesses, independent businesses in the Canadian economy prior to March 2020? Yeah, it's a great question. So small businesses play a critical role in the Canadian economy. And if we just zoom out for a minute, and I'll give you, I'll throw just a couple of big stats. Um, So there's about just over a million businesses in Canada. 98% of those businesses are small businesses. And those small businesses then contribute about 90% of the private sector employment um, in Canada and about half of the economic output of the country. Um, So small and medium-sized businesses are are a huge force in Canada. And, you know, the takeaway here is there is no economic recovery for Canada without a small business recovery. Now, since since the pandemic has set in, uh, it's it's been small businesses that have really felt it uh, in terms of uh, their ability to uh, keep people employed, their ability to you know keep the lights on. Even um, I wonder if you'd speak briefly to what the state of uh, small business in Canada is. Uh, you know, end of September ish. So end of September-ish, the state of small business is a little better than it was in June, but small businesses were in terrible shape in June. So saying we're a little bit better than we were at the end of June is is unfortunately not, um, you know, not saying uh, much. So again, to throw a couple of numbers out just to create some context around the, the, the picture that we're seeing, we're tracking kind of three key um, simple indicators. One is what percentage of small business are back to normal revenue? So what percent are back to normal pre-pandemic revenue? And only 30% of businesses are back to their um, fully back to normal uh, revenue. We're also asking, are you back to your normal staffing levels? Only 40% are back to normal staffing. And then we're asking, are you fully open? Because many businesses had to either shut down entirely or um, were at reduced hours. And many are continuing those reduced hours. Um, So we've got 70% are fully open. So those are worrying numbers, particularly the revenue one, with only 30% back to normal sales six months after the pandemic started, that that's a real concern. Laura, I looked at uh, your guys' snapshot that you did, um, the one titled, uh, is our Canadian small businesses headed for an L-shaped recovery? Um, I guess my first question to you would, would be, what's an L-shaped recovery? 
Yeah, economists love to put uh, shapes to recovery. So probably the one most people have heard of is the V-shaped recovery, because that's the one everyone hopes for. So you kind of go down into an economic uh, downturn. So that's one side of the V, and then you, you, know, you bounce up. Uh, back out of it is the other side of the V. The other letter economists like to use is a W, where you go, you go down, then you go up a bit, you go down again, and then you come out of the out of the um, recession. What L shape is? L is kind of the worst shape you can um, imagine because you go down and then you stay down for a long period of time. Um, so you know, if you think of uh, Japan's lost decade, for example, was an L shaped recovery. Um, so an L shaped recovery is when you know consumer confidence um, just doesn't return and you um, stay in a lower uh, you, you stay in a kind of a depressed uh, economic state for longer than certainly anyone would like so that's our worry right now is that if something doesn't change we're looking at an l-shaped recovery because um, you know we're still very far off normal and if this pace continues um, on average, businesses won't recover for a year and a half, but for some sectors at this pace, like hospitality, it'll be eight years before they're out of it. Now, of course, you know, we're hoping that that changes, that we don't stay at this pace. But if this pace continues, we're definitely looking at an L-shaped recovery. Um, so uh, something that comes to mind uh, in you know a lot of discussions about this pandemic and about if you look at businesses in the economy that are thriving – a lot of them are online. You know, I'm thinking of the the, the fangs, you know, uh, and I know that those aren't small businesses, but it's but something that I've heard is that this pandemic is 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 accelerating change that was already in that it, that was already in the market that was already coming. Do do small businesses generally can they see opportunity in this re- extremely disruptive event and could that be that that being the the pandemic and could this be uh, like I said, could, could this be an opportunity for them to to change their business, to pivot, to adapt their business to new realities? Yes, and many businesses are adapting and pivoting to new realities and particularly leveraging online. So we've talked to a lot of business owners who you know, I remember talking to one who said it was just the craziest week of their life because they um, had to take pictures of everything in the store and get online and, you know, figure out how to do that in kind of record time. And so you have, you know, many businesses who are in that category. But for many others, it's just not an online experience. You know, I think of the business um, that we talked to in Victoria who sells mainly to older clients, retail clothing, and their clients aren't online. So, you know, an online model just doesn't work for them. Um, And there are, you know, for example, restaurants that, you know, for some takeout and the online options to to order takeout work really well. But for other more high-end dining, that's been more challenging. So there's, it's just a mix of, and and it's certainly not going to be the silver bullet that, that, that saves all businesses. The other issue with online is, you know, there's been Amazons and the big box stores are doing just fine right now. And many of them, you know, I mean, of course, that that is sort of a great online option in some ways. But the challenge is that a lot of the money that is being spent, there's, we're seeing a bit of a shift um, to those bigger retailers away from the small business. And that's very challenging because it's a little more work sometimes to search for that local business who might have that product that you're looking for. Of course, we're encouraging consumers to do that. And we have a campaign to make it easy. People can check out smallbusinessevery.ca where you can find out about great campaigns to um, encourage local shopping and reward you um, in some cases for that, uh, making that extra effort to shop local. 
other than the you know the the online challenges that some of uh, you know some smaller businesses have faced, uh, what are other big challenges or the biggest challenges that uh, that small business owners have faced uh, during the pandemic since March? Well, you know the financial it's it's really stress. You know we did one of these uh, clouds where you ask businesses what are the what are the top five words that you would, you would use to you know describe your state of mind, and the the biggest one by far is stress, and it's both financial stress and emotional stress. And the emotional stress is obviously tied to the to the the stress of worried worrying about your business. Um, but you know a lot of businesses took on debt um, to pay their bills, so to continue to pay staff in some cases. Um, and also to pay bills like rent that they couldn't get out of um, in many cases or bills that they had, ongoing bills that they just, you know, you just have to pay. Otherwise, you you um, are not going to be um, maintaining your business. And so that's been very, very stressful. Businesses have taken on a lot of debt to, to, um, to deal with COVID. Um, and so, um, yeah, the, the, the stress of it is really pretty um, intense for most of them. I mean, most of them, this is the worst they've ever seen in terms of what's going on in their businesses. We don't know when we're going to come out of this pandemic. We don't know when, you know, a lot of people are, are saying, uh, uh, governments are saying that once there's a, uh, a vaccine, uh, things will start to get back to normal. But even that is, the, the timeline on that is unknown. But when things, when this pandemic clears, uh, what role do you see small business having in, in, in the recovery of Canada's economy? Well, small businesses are going to be critical in terms of that hiring piece because they're responsible for so um, many of the private sector um, jobs. So we can't all be um, on government assistance um, forever. That's not sustainable. So as people are you know, getting back to work, um, those small businesses are going to be the ones creating the jobs. And small businesses are they're nimble. Um, they're resilient. I mean, there's no question they're being tested um, in <laughs> incredible ways right now. Um, but I have no doubt that some business owners who have already been, you know, um, forced to shut down because of the pandemic will pivot and come up with new interesting businesses. So, you know, and you, you do see even in the pandemic, new businesses opening. Mm-hmm. So I think they're going to be they're going to play a critical role. But you know, the question is, how long is it going to take? And that's going to be very dependent on um, consumer confidence and how confident we are that we can start, you know, spending again. Um, that's going to be a really, really important factor um, in the recovery. Now, Laura painted a pretty bleak picture of Canada's small businesses, responsible for half the economic activity in the country and 90 percent of the private sector employment. And as of late September, only 30 percent are back to normal revenues. But the energy industry has also been an engine in Canada's economy and could help not lead only a post-pandemic recovery, but also a green recovery. And it's been battered and bruised for the past five years, especially the oil and gas sector, first with a drop in crude prices and now with this pandemic. In 2018, the energy sector accounted for 10% of the country's GDP. In the second quarter of this year, it was closer to half that. But then there was this in the throne speech. Canada cannot reach net zero without the know-how of the energy sector and the innovative ideas of all Canadians, including people in places like British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Newfoundland and Labrador. The government will support manufacturing, natural resource, and energy sectors as they work to transform to meet a net zero future, creating good-paying and long-lasting jobs. 
and it will recognize farmers, foresters, and ranchers as key partners in the fight against, against climate change, supporting their efforts to reduce emissions and to build resilience. Markham Hislop is an energy journalist, been covering the sector for a while, and he's also the publisher for Energy Media and joins us. Thanks for your time, Markham. Always a pleasure, Adam. So recently, uh, Governor Gen- General Julie Payette uh, read the throne speech outlining uh, the uh, federal government's plan to build back better, as the phrase goes. And that included a lot of uh, uh, moving towards uh, kind of a net zero uh, economy. Uh, and there was some references to the energy industry um, supporting investments in renewable energy, next gen clean energy and the like. Uh, we wanted to, to get you on to get kind of your thoughts on what the future looks like that was laid out in broad strokes by that speech? An energy transition started in roughly uh, 2000, and energy transitions uh, last, you know, 50 to 100 years. Uh, And we're just coming up to what was going to be a really disruptive uh, decade for the transition from fossil fuels to electricity generated by low-carbon technologies like wind and solar and hydro and tidal and so on. And that means there's going to be disruption to fossil fuel markets, particularly hydrocarbons and particularly oil. So there's a lot of moving parts to this. But clearly, um, the federal government and a number of the provincial governments are all on board with this. And they put together plans, energy transition plans, climate policy plans to deal with this. And the general approach is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by electrifying their economies. So if you look at BC, they've got Clean BC, and their plan is to shift transportation, buildings, and industry away from oil, uh, coal, oil, gas, over to electricity, maybe hydrogen, uh, over the course of the next 30 years. And uh, the Trudeau government has kind of that same vision. You're seeing Quebec move in that direction. Ontario's a little slower under Ford, but still that's the general direction. And Alberta is the outlier. And Alberta was under the, the Notley government, sort of, sort of kind of headed in that direction. But with Kenny, uh, the brakes, he applied the brakes after the election in, in 2019. And so what you saw in the throne speech was essentially a continuation of what the Trudeau government did after it was elected in 20, uh, 2015. It builds on the election campaign promises that were made in uh, the last fall's election. Uh, of course, it's a minority government, and then you have the NDP and the Green uh, Party that are supporting uh, the, uh, the government in power, but they've been p- applying pressure uh, to Trudeau for uh, more climate-friendly policies. So the throne speech was hardly, uh, hardly revolutionary. It was hardly surprising. I interviewed uh, Dr. Sarah uh, Hastings Simon from the University of Calgary about it, and she said, "Look, you know, this is this is uh, there's nothing really uh, 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 radical about this. We've seen it before. This is what we were expecting." And the premier disagreed because what he wanted to see was a very specific uh, commitment to the oil and gas industry, particularly Alberta. It strikes me though that there's. Um, a- I guess headwinds to Canada or headwinds to the established Canada's energy industry in terms of this 
energy transition, but also, uh, you know, a drop in demand due to the coronavirus pandemic. Um, That's dual disruptions going on for the energy industry at the same time. Well, it's very interesting. I mean, a lot of attention has been focused on what super major BP said in its, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago that that peak oil demand may have already arrived. And if it hasn't arrived, uh, it will in the very near future. But I want to draw your attention to an op-ed that was written uh, by Suncor CEO Mark Little and uh, Alberta Innovate CEO Laura Kilcrease. It came out, I think it was in July 1st or June 1st edition of the Corporate Nights magazine. And in there, and this is obviously Little's point of view, it says very clearly that the pandemic may be a preview of the disruption to oil markets that they expected. we expected further down the road it may happen quicker, and Alberta needs to start thinking really quickly and hard about what it's going to do with the hydrocarbon sector. And what they suggest is uh, a move towards something that Energy Media has been supporting for, for years now, which is using more of those hydrocarbons as feedstock for materials production, for hydrogen production, and less for you know the traditional uh, refining you know, you send the bitumen down to uh, the American Midwest or the U.S. Gulf Coast, turn it into gasoline and diesel. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why that's a really sound strategy. Now, you know, there's still lots of research and development to be done. Uh, it's unlikely that Alberta could manufacture carbon fiber from bitumen for another five to seven years, according to the Alberta Innovate scientists that I've interviewed. But they said it can be done. And I also interviewed a fellow named Alex Walk, who is the VP of sales for, uh, well, what's the name of it? That uh, It'll come to me. Anyway, mm. it's a big man, uh, U.S. carbon fiber manufacturer located in Missouri. And he's been up to, to uh, see what uh, kind of research Alberta Innovates and is doing in Edmonton. And he said, look, they're going to figure out a way to make uh, carbon fiber out of this. And... Uh, if they can do that, and since the bitumen is here, you locate the manufacturing plant where the feedstock is located. And he said there's no reason why that all of these you know, manuf- carbon fiber manufacturing couldn't be a big thing, a huge thing in Alberta. So those are the kind of directions that, that, we could, that Alberta can pivot toward uh, that actually provides more economic value, more job creation, more business opportunity than we currently have. And the leadership in the oil and gas industry is finally just starting to come out and publicly say this. And what I've argued is that it needs to do it a lot quicker. We need it more quicker. And particularly what we need is the premier and the, and the Alberta government to stop, you know, throwing up roadblocks and stop always being uh, advocating for, you know, the status quo or, you know, the industry as it was 20 years ago, not the industry and global markets as they are today. So, Markham, if energy companies and the industry are already in the transition to a different way of doing things, does it really matter what politicians say in the public? If the policymakers we have, the majority of the government in Canada are already on the side of a green transition, does it matter in the end what politicians say or the message they're sending? It does matter, and it matters a lot for a number of reasons. One is the, the rhetoric around this is uh, not conducive, and the political culture in Alberta is not conducive to moving more quickly 
uh, towards this low carbon future. It's uh, it acts as a drag on that. And secondly, uh, uh, Little was very clear. It was kind of unusual, actually. Uh, Little and Kilcrease asked for federal leadership on this issue. In fact, they, they asked that there be a public agency created. Uh, there, many Albertans will remember AOSTRA that was created under Peter Lougheed to advance the oil sands. And there wouldn't be steam-assisted gravity drainage in the oil sands today, and that's the primary method now of extracting bitumen. It wouldn't exist today without AOSTRA. And, and federal government, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, uh, actually, they were big investors in AOSTRA and in the oil sands. And it's that kind of approach that's needed again. There's a, a you know, Dr. Hastings Simon uses that as an example of uh, a model for that Alberta could follow and Canada could follow. And in fact, Little and Kilcrease in their op-ed say, yes, that's exactly how we should go. We need the federal checkbook to come to the table and invest in, in these uh, kinds of projects. But getting that investment is very difficult when the premier is out you know, campaigning against uh, against the government in Ontario during the election campaign, when the premier is constantly, constantly criticizing the federal government uh, in the media, on social media, during his press conferences, it, that that throws up a huge barrier to creating the kind of environment that is required in Alberta uh, to advance this this new strategy. I'm not saying that it, it won't advance, but it needs to be much quicker, and it would be much quicker. Uh, if everybody was singing from the same song sheet. And I can tell you that there are business groups in Alberta that I've talked to, uh, some, mostly off the record. They don't want to be, uh, they don't want to be the, the tall blade of grass here. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of business people who aren't happy with the, the kind of obstreperousness, the pugnacious approach that the premier is taking. And they, they feel that it's inhibiting uh, the kind of policy and politics they need to to make this pivot. So. Markham, a part of the conversation that we've not really been acknowledged, well, we've kind of skirted around, but uh, haven't properly acknowledged is the fact that we, in addition to being in a public health crisis, we're also in an environment crisis, and that is part of the drive for this transition to cleaner energy. Um, and I mean, I know that uh, just in in late September, uh, California said that in 15 years they're not going to sell any new. Uh, they're going to ban the sell the sale of any new internal combustion engine vehicles. Um, we are seeing, and and then there, there's also all sorts of uh, uh, commitments from other governments to reach uh, you know uh, net zero carbon futures and that and that sort of thing. Um, it, from your perspective. And looking at, at, at the energy industry worldwide, what's the timeline for a, a complete transition to, uh, to or, or not even a complete transition, what's the timeline for a transition to a, a cleaner future, uh, at which point, uh, you know, c- the conventional practices that are on the ground in Canada's uh, oil and gas industry, uh, what point are those going to be left behind? What's the timeline there? You've hit upon the key question here. Because energy transitions uh, take a long time. You know, we've got a Canada has a the foremost scholar on energy transitions. That's uh, Vaclav Smil, uh, Bill Gates' fav- favorite author, who teaches at the University of Manitoba. He's published mm-hmm. many, many books and articles on energy transitions, and uh, they generally take fifty to one hundred years. And this particular one is just really uh, unpredictable, and because. 
Uh, we're doing it at a scale that's never been done before. We're doing it at a level of sophistication and complexity that's never done before. Then we've got the climate crisis. So what role will policy play? Will climate policy play? There's so many moving parts to this thing that it's really, really hard to say. But I think it is fair to say that the over the last 20 years, a lot of the technologies, the energy technologies that are required for the shift from fossil fuels to electricity, entered the market, got on the adoption curve, are, and are now at the point of, you know, they've gone through the innovator phase, the early adopter phase. They're heading into that early majority adopter phase. That's mm -hmm. when disruption happens. And it's very likely that the 2020s is going to be a very, very disruptive decade. This is when electricity is going to really begin to compete with oil and gas and particularly with oil on the transportation side. I mean, how many announcements have we had in the last little while from Tesla and Lucid and other mm -hmm. manufacturers about electric vehicles? I mean, it was only a couple of days ago Tesla had its battery uh, day and announced that it's going to have a $25,000 electric vehicle within three years. And this is the kind of change that's coming, and it's really going to shape up, shake up the market. People like you know Mark Little understand that. But here's the key question, Adam. I really want to get Albertans need to understand this. The, the disruption doesn't happen when 100% of oil is displaced from the market or even 50% of oil is displaced from the market. It happens when it's 2% or 5%. This is Why is produced by me, Adam Toy, and Dave McIver. It's a national radio show and a podcast. You can reach us by email at thisiswhy at globalnews.ca and on Twitter at this is why. If you like what you hear and want to hear more, make sure you subscribe to This Is Why so you never miss an episode. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, give us a five-star rating. Thanks for listening. Wash your hands, wear a mask, and please stay safe. We'll see you soon.